Welcome to the What We Talked About in Class podcast, brought to you from the campus of Wayne Community College in Goldsboro, North Carolina, sponsored by the Foundation of Wayne Community College. Hey everyone, it's your instructor, Ryan Bradshaw, coming to you from the house. And I know this is a a different kind of setup for you. Believe me when I say it's a different kind of setup for me. But thankfully, we are able to do this in a way so we can still hold class and you can still get the lecture and still participate and still proceed and move forward and not able to miss a beat with regards to our semester progress. So I'm thankful that we have this digital infrastructure in place that's going to allow us to move forward. I hope you all are doing well, and I, I think about you guys. Uh, it's, you know, you have this quote, uh, you don't realize what you have or miss what you have until it's gone. And I really, truthfully, did not take for granted that I was able to come and teach you guys and be with you guys on a, on a weekly basis. But I do miss you guys. I miss being able to be in the classroom And I think the longer this stretches out, the more I'll miss being able to talk to you face-to-face and interact with you and hear your stories. And so at some point in the future, I want to hold some type of conference call where we can kind of get together as a class and just hang out for an hour or so. Just, Just people can call in and talk. And maybe we can do it so that I can do the conference call like as a podcast. So, like, we'll have guests call in, or, or you guys would call in as the guests, and we would just talk about things, and it'll be kind of cool. I think it'll be fun, and so, because it, it could be isolating, you know, it hasn't been that long since we were together last, but I know that, you know, when you're home all the time, it can get kind of stagnant very quickly, you know. I don't feel that stagnant yet, but I have had some interesting days being at home with the kids already. Um, they can, you know, they can just like persist. I think as I told you in class, you know, my kids like to tag team me. So one will come in the room and ask for something and then they'll leave. And then right behind them, another one comes in and then they'll leave. And by the time I get to the third kid, I'm pretty mad at the kids. So that third kid like really gets to feel the, you know, the wrath, even though it really wasn't their fault, you know, and I have to apologize often for that. So, but anyway, I guess let's get to the topic at hand as far as what everybody's talking about these days, which is the coronavirus. And uh, I started sending out emails about this. I checked. I went back and looked to see when I started really taking it very seriously. And this was February 27th when I sent my first email of concern about it. And so this is about three weeks ago or so. And... It just has escalated even beyond my expectations or what I thought, you know, could. I mean, I actually did some math about three weeks ago. I was I was at home. It was late in the night and I was reading articles about it. And, um, you know, the thing that brought me like kind of to a, I guess, a realization was when they started talking about flu statistics versus what the coronavirus statistics were. And when they when they said that it was you know, 10 to 20 times more lethal, you know, I started looking up flu statistics and kind of estimating based on what was available. And, 
yeah, it that really, those first few calculations really kind of caught my attention. And I said, you know, this is a really serious thing and people need to take it seriously because it does spread more freely than the flu. And uh, I've, I've, I've said, you know, from, from day one when I started talking to you guys about it that I'm not an alarmist. But I think you guys know now that it is a serious thing. And uh, since they've, you know, canceled schools or canceled is a bad word. Uh, you know, I guess uh, for K-12, they've they've kind of suspended them indefinitely. But for us, we've just, we suspended for one week and now we're doing this with an alternative uh, modality, being digital versus, in, in, you know, in the classroom. But yeah, um, you know, as... As the days have progressed, I've started kind of keeping a record of uh, the, I guess, the data with the coronavirus and looking at it. And I, I talked to my mom today, and on the 18th, which was, I believe, four days ago, yeah, there was approximately 8,000 cases in the United States. That was the 18th. Today's the 22nd. I'm recording this on Sunday night. It'll be available for you tomorrow morning. Um, but, yeah, when when I looked at the data today or the latest update, um, the current case count is a little over 36,000 cases. So think about that for a second. 8,000 four days ago, 36,000 today. I had spoke to a friend um, a day or two ago and said it'll be 40,000 cases by Monday night, and it looks like we're probably going to exceed that by then. Once again, none of this is meant to incite fear. 80% of the time, uh, if you did contract this, you're going to be just fine. You might have a strong uh, flu-like or pneumonia-like experience, but uh, the scientists and doctors are saying that people recover. Um, but there are the, the really worrying part of this is that uh, if we can, if we come up to a situation where our medical uh, facilities and our medical care is overrun by cases too quickly, where we have an, a large spike, I mean, just imagine that you know a local hospital has—I have no idea—but we'll just use an easy number. <clears throat> Let's say a local hospital has a hundred beds available, you know, and you know that, that's just—you know—they may have other beds than that, but let's say they have 100 beds that are able to be filled, which it seems like probably high for a local hospital, but we'll go with that. Just imagine that they needed 500 or 1,000 or 2,000 beds uh, to to deal with a crisis like we're facing. And so we're seeing it in Italy play out where uh, the hospital facilities are being overran, and that's a real problem. And so the reason why we're doing the social distancing thing and everybody's trying to stay home and not interacting in public, uh, or at least to a very minimum, is because you can be a carrier and you can infect other people without showing symptoms. It's called being asymptomatic. And so you're doing the best thing you can do for society by staying home, doing your work, uh, and uh, actually trying to do things productive from the house. Now, I know some of you are still going into work. I, know, I realize that, you know, that you can't just stay home forever. Some of you may have reduced hours, and I hope that the government is going to step in and help everyone in those situations. Um, 
I know they're talking about passing another stimulus package in the very near future. I've been following that very closely. <clears throat> the the talk that I've I've heard this past uh, few days is is ranged from a thousand dollars per individual all the way up to four thousand dollars per individual. So, and I know I talked about that in an email I sent you guys uh, earlier, but you know I just don't know. I mean, I know that the expectation now is the government to intervene with some type of assistance. And I just don't know what that looks like. And I just hope that they can get money to the people as fast as possible to, to assist you guys with anything that you might need. And if you do need something specifically, if you need food or if you need supplies of any kind of any kind, don't be afraid to reach out to me. I've got a lot of connections. I'm not the most connected person in the community, but I know a lot of people that are connected and we're not going to leave you hanging. We're going to be there to help you in some way. If if you just let me know if there's a need that you have and we will be there to help. And so don't be afraid to ask because uh, I think by the time this thing's over, we're all going to have to ask somebody for some, some type of favor. So this is a time that we've got to stick together and I'm happy to help and do what I can to, to help you guys and anybody because this is probably the biggest global event of my lifetime, and I hope that we can uh, reduce the amount of impact. That's really the best case scenario is reducing the amount of impact because we're going to have an impact. We just don't know how big it's going to be, but people really being cognizant and aware of uh, their where they are and uh, trying to stay out of public, that's really just the smart thing to do. All these things we've talked about, like washing hands, sanitizing, um, social distancing, if you do go out in public, not getting close to people, um, just being aware of of that is just going to help you avoid this, hopefully. And so I would be uh, just devastated if, if my students were impacted by this or, or any of my family and friends. I, I want you guys to be safe. And healthy so uh, another topic that I'm going to talk about that really ties into the next chapter <clears throat> which we're on chapter 10 this week is um, the financial markets and so this is really a very interesting and very I guess scary is the right word uh, time to be alive because of the, the financial markets and the coronavirus you've got these two this double threat happening at the same time. Um, so, and, and they exacerbate each other. And so uh, just to kind of give you a brief lead into chapter 10, which talks about consumer credit, um, our financial system is completely built off trust. A hundred percent, you know, our money system, the whole thing is really monopoly money. And uh, the only thing that gives money value, paper money, and digital money by the government. The only thing that gives it value is this belief that there is value in it. Um, it's not backed by any real assets. And so it used to be that money was on the gold standards, meaning that I could take dollars and exchange them for an equal value of gold. And that tied that dollar or tied those that, that money to a real physical asset. Well, Nixon took us off the gold standard I believe in 1971, and one of the reasons he took us off the gold standard was to allow the government to print more money, or basically create more money, and to use that money to 
kind of build our modern economy here. <coughs> Excuse me. But the the problem is with that is that as you print money, you create inflation and you debase other the currency that exists. So a way to explain this is that if I've got, you know, 100 pennies and I add 20 to it, those 100 pennies, you know, they're still a penny, but over time, uh, the supply, the money supply gets as such that people that are selling things realize, well, hey, people have got more money and they're buying out all my merchandise or they're buying all our goods and services. So we need to raise the price of this goods and services in order to <clears throat> command more dollars because it, you know, it, it, there's more circulating currency. So you don't really see it, but it happens gradually over time. So our, our currency, as as money is printed, as, as new money is created, it debases the current supply of money. <clears throat> and through the 2008 crisis, and I've talked about it in class quite a bit, uh, but what happened there was banks were lending money to people that really couldn't qualify or shouldn't have qualified for mortgages. And then when they sold these subprime mortgages, they bought insurance on it. And so if the consumer defaulted, the bank said, what's well, okay if they default because we have an insurance policy that says if they default, we still get paid. <clears throat> and that's, that's all good and fine, right? But as it turns out, so many people defaulted that the insurance company couldn't afford to pay. And then the bank's saying, well, wait a minute. You know, I bought all this, these insurance policies, and I'm expecting payment. And if you can't pay me, then I can't pay my people. And so it created this crisis of credit. <clears throat> and it was a major crisis. It was a situation where it was jamming up credit so bad. Credit meaning uh, the ability to have liquid uh, assets or liquid money flow through our economy to pay employees to buy supplies for uh, businesses, to operate businesses. <clears throat> and without that currency, or without that credit, things kind of slowed down, and uh, you were dealing with massive unemployment, massive layoffs, and we were losing a million jobs a month um, at the height of the last crisis. So <clears throat> it definitely wasn't a good thing. And the way we solved that problem back in 2008 is that we printed massive amounts of money and we did rate cuts on interest rates. And we would, so we, we cut rates to encourage borrowing and said, you know, now that rates are low, you want to borrow money because you can get money next to nothing. <clears throat> so that's a good thing. And then they printed massive amounts of money and injected that money into the economy in order to give more liquidity. But once again, the problem with that is once you create that artificial money, you're debasing value from all the other money that exists. And so what ends up happening is that everyday's people, people that work and uh, live their life every day and, and you know, they get, they're living paycheck to paycheck, that money is debased over time. And so I've told you about it in class when we talk about money. Um, if you took a $100 bill at 2% inflation and put it under your mattress, in 10 years when you pull that $100 bill, it's still a $100 bill, but it's going to buy 20% less. And so that's a real problem. It, it actually robs you of your buying power over time. So now, fast forward to our current situation. You know, we were able to put a Band-Aid on it in 2008. We didn't fix the problem, really. We just put a bubble, a bigger bubble, 
around the bubble that already existed. This debt bubble, this printing money, quantitative easing by lowering interest rates. <clears throat> and so what we're doing now, or what we're, we're, we are doing and what we're about to do again, is create an even bigger bubble to cover the exploding bubble that is the financial markets right now. I don't know if you've been paying attention to the stock market. I mention it in class sometimes, but the market is down approximately 35%, which is major trillions of dollars we're talking about. When the stock market goes down, of course, people's 401ks and personal wealth goes down, but it also constricts the amount of capital that companies have to operate. And that capital constriction um, jams up liquidity. And so it creates all types of ripple effect, effect problems throughout our economy. <clears throat> so what you start to see is layoffs happening again and companies closing their doors. And so the government realizes, hey, this is a bad thing that's about to happen. And so we need to step in and do something in order to avoid this massive time bomb from going off in our economy and global economy at that. Because so many countries are connected to the American economy. If the American economy went down, it would just cause a ripple effect around the globe, and it would cause a global recession, if not a depression, and I don't use that word lightly. And so what the government is doing now, they're injecting massive amounts of capital into the economy. Um, we're talking about, by the time this thing is over, 10 to 20 times more money than they did last time in 2008. So $700 billion was last time. The number they're talking about this time is already at $5 billion. So, I mean, that's a huge number. I mean, $5 trillion, I'm sorry. So $700 billion to $5 trillion, I mean, right there. I mean, you're already getting close to 10x on what you did last time. And so, yeah, I mean, it's just, you know, was that 7x and change? So it's, wow, already, you know, we're, we're having to do that because, let me just explain how that happened. They basically put a bubble around the problem last time, and it created this even bigger bubble, and the bubble popped, and it was exacerbated by the coronavirus fears. And so there's a lot of moving parts in the system right now. Things are really uncertain and complicated. <coughs> Excuse me. Yeah, a lot of talking. Uh, I don't have anybody to relieve me in this uh, podcast because uh, you guys are out there in cyberspace, and so... Uh, I have to do all the talking, but that's okay. But anyway, um, how does this tie into our chapter? Well, the chapter is on consumer credit. And this uh, credit crisis we're going through right now is directly related to the bigger picture because individual credit and debt and company credit and debt, it all like connects up to national and global uh, credit and debt. And so the title of chapter 10 is Consumer Credit Transactions. And the opening sequence talks about uh, credit in the U.S. So the amount of consumer or household debt is difficult to determine. I've seen various figures and, you know, and I've seen and there's I've seen different figures based on credit card. I've seen different figures based on student loans. So it's, it's hard to quantify exactly where that's at. Focusing on the average household debt is not helpful because 55% do not have credit card debt at all, which is a good thing and a bad thing. I'll explain. <clears throat> so I've talked about credit cards a little bit in our lecture series on let's talk about money. 
And credit cards are a kind of a double-edged sword. They're good for emergencies. They're good for building credit because if you open a line of credit and you use it responsibly, meaning you know you charge something on it, you pay it off month to month, no, you carry no balance. That looks terrific on a credit card on a credit report. <clears throat> it shows that you're using the credit responsibly. You don't carry a high limit, and you pay it off month to month on time. It's going to actually improve your credit score. It's going to improve your chances to get larger loans and uh, for things like houses and cars. <clears throat> so I do recommend having a credit card, but uh, I would strongly advise you to use it for only small, like a small transaction or two a month that you pay off on a monthly basis. A good practice uh, is something like you get a credit card and you only use it for gas. You know, I'm just going to use it for gas. And then when I get paid, that's the first thing I pay off is that gas bill. It's because, you know, you use it for gas. You're going to buy gas anyway with cash. So you can use it and pay it off. Strongly try to avoid any type of credit card that has a annual fee. Some types, some cards, um, you know, will try to, you know, they'll offer you a card and you have to pay $39 to $99 a month, uh, a year for the annual fee. You shouldn't have to pay to use credit. And some will require it if you have limited or no credit. <clears throat> I have kind of reservations about that because if you get into a situation where you're paying an annual fee and then you finally, you know, you get to the point where you say, well, I can get another credit card now with no annual fee. What do you do with that first one? Well, if you cancel it, it actually might hurt your credit because it will it will uh, shorten the length of history that you have for your accounts. I know, credit's complicated. So I just advise you from the start to try to find a card with no annual fee. Um, and you can actually, if you can't find one, talk to your bank about what kind of opportunities because they have connections with uh, credit card companies. And so that might be a good way to establish your first card. Um, but yeah, just use it for a very intentional purpose and pay it off first thing when you get paid. That's a good way to manage that credit. Um, in 2007, the total household debt owed by Americans was, uh, 13.3 trillion, according to the federal reserve. <clears throat> I heard a, a statement or a estimate, the total, it was, it wasn't household, but it was just all us how, uh, assets, I don't want to misquote, but it was something like 121 trillion was total U.S. assets, and this was a recent number that I saw in the past two weeks, and then it had total U.S. liabilities at 87 trillion, and so we were we we're actually on the plus side of that, <clears throat> but that gap is shrinking, and so it's important to to always try to have more assets than liabilities. That's another conversation. So suffice it to say, the credit, uh, the availability of credit is an important factor in the U.S. economy. Absolutely. We need credit in order to finance our operation, um, in order to build businesses. I mean, it's rare for you to be able to start a sizable business without some type of loan. Um, some, some companies are able to do it. They're able to save and, you know, have a certain amount of savings and then start that's really the best way if you can do it. Um, but, um, so, you know, it's common for small businesses to take out a loan, and that's the way they get started. Um, but you just have to evaluate. Every case is different. Every situation is different. 
And so those things have to be evaluated on an individual basis. Uh, the number of statutes have been enacted over the years to protect consumers before and after signing credit agreements. There, there's a number of these statutes. Uh, this includes mortgages, stores, automobile dealers, other merchants that sell on credit. And so credit is a very important and very uh, essential part of our economy, even though it can get you into a situation that you don't want to be in if you uh, or have too much debt and uh, a situation arises where you have to default on that debt, <clears throat> that kind of stuff can really uh, be detrimental to your business, be detrimental to you as a person. But the good thing about America is, is that we believe in second chances. Um, I'm uh, certain that if you talk to people that are successful, they can tell you a horror story about uh, where debt or credit jammed them up in some regard i remember kenny moore came and spoke to uh our, our classes we had a uh the, the interview style type workshop where kenny came down and if you don't know kenny he's the uh, ceo and uh founder of highway 55 formerly known as andy's hamburgers <clears throat> super great guy um i'd love to spend more time with him uh he actually is uh lives not far um, from my church uh, in, in, in the community. So, But anyway, just a really interesting and highly motivated guy to talk to. And he told the story of how he got started. He actually took out a loan from his in-laws, and I think he said $30,000 is what he borrowed to start his first store. And throughout the stories he was telling us, <clears throat> he told us a story about how Andy's, or Highway 55, almost went under. And it was really interesting to hear him talk about this because I had no idea until he brought it up, you know. And so it was just, uh, you get the, it's so interesting to hear these stories on like a firsthand account because you don't see it or hear it or know it when you go into a Highway 55 store. But yeah, he, um, he was having a, he had a relationship with a bank and he didn't go into details, but he said that that relationship was strained and the bank wanted to call him on his loan. And he needed $2 million in order to satisfy the loan or they were he was going to default and they were going to go out of business. And I'm thinking, man, talk about the pressure, you know, $2 million. I mean, that's a lot of cash. And so he only had like one week to get get the money together. He was able to find a another financer, another lender, and was able to make it happen, but I mean, he was right there that close to the brink. And I mean, imagine all the years and uh, effort he put into this company and all the locations that, that, that were already established. And here he is jammed up. And so these lines of credit and funding is so essential to our economy and to small business, uh, small businesses and individuals. So <clears throat> entering into credit, lenders, whether banks or retailers, are not free to charge whatever they wish for credit there are legal limits. Usury laws establish a maximum rate of lawful interest, various penalties for violations. And so we do have caps, legal caps that are available. I don't know, I don't think I showed you guys uh, this documentary, but this would be a good time to watch it. I'm pretty sure most of you have Netflix. So if you do have Netflix, <clears throat> go to Netflix and type in Dirty Money. And Dirty Money is a great series, and you get to see 
some of the behind the scenes uh, scandals that have happened in business. And this one in particular is called, oh man, it's called something payday. I think it's what it's called. It's just payday. And it tells the story of Scott Tucker. I believe his name. He was the founder and CEO of this payday lending company. And in the story, uh, it shows how he raised a two uh, over a $2 billion empire. He had a personal net worth of $400 million. Guy was kind of like an egomaniac. He, uh, he got into race cars and started racing himself and wanted to create like this celebrity status around himself. But he was very much in violation of usury laws. He, um, instead of charging a, an exorbitant interest rate, he had this fee schedule. This is the way he tried to get around it, <clears throat> where if the person, let's say they borrowed $150, so they pay, let's say the next time they get paid, they pay 100 they owe 50 Well, he would charge them a $30 renewal fee on the 50 and then when they come to pay the 50 um, he would charge them, there would be a $30 balance after the 50 so then he would charge them another $30 renewal fee. And so now they owe 60 more bucks on top of the money they paid back, plus interest, of course. So, yeah, watch the payday lending. Really, uh, you can see the scandalous ways that he tried to get around the usury laws. He even like went into business with uh, Native American tribes and tried to use their personal or their native sovereignty uh, because you've probably heard about like Native American gaming casino casinos they have sovereign land that is outside of the purview of the government and so they can operate those casinos without worry for interference you know and in places that normally gambling is illegal they can operate and so he tried to go establish a partnership with the uh with a native tribe i think the modocs were the name of the tribe and he wanted to use them basically as a front and then he would pay them a percentage on the back end. So this guy was really, he was trying to play, you know, some a dangerous game. But I think he got seven years in prison. Sorry for the spoiler alert. But uh, anyway, still really good, worth watching. In fact, season two is now out. And I haven't started it yet. But um, I'm going to probably check it out over the next few weeks. So um, <clears throat> going back into credit, in many cases, the exceptions regarding uh, usury um have pretty much eaten up the general rule. Here's some common exceptions. So business loans, mortgage loans, consumer leasing, credit cards, and other mentioned in the chapter. And so um, one of these laws is the Truth in Lending Act. Setting limits on what credit card or credit costs, <clears throat> as usually laws do, is one thing. Disclosing the cost of credit is another. Until 1969, Lenders were generally free to disclose the cost of money loaned or credit extended in any way they saw fit, and they did. Financing the credit termed, terms varied widely and was difficult or impossible to understand what the truth. I'm sorry, what the true cost a loan was, um, much less being able to comparison shop. So what they did before we got clarity in the law was that lenders tried to mask or they try to kind of um, <clears throat> make it in such a way that it would <clears throat> be difficult for a consumer to understand uh, what exactly they were getting. And so after years of failure, consumer interest persuaded Congress to pass national laws requiring disclosure of credit costs. 
officially called Consumer Credit Protection Act Title I, more commonly known as Truth in Lending Act. It only applies to consumer credit transactions, not business organization debtors. Lenders must inform borrowers about significant terms of credit transactions, does not establish maximum interest rates. These continue to be governed by state law. The two key terms that must be disclosed are the financial charge, or I'm sorry, the finance charge, and the annual percentage rates. Finance charge is the total of all money paid for the credits. It includes the interest paid over the life of the loan and all the processing charges. Annual percentage rate is the true rate of interest for money or credit actually available to the borrower. And so if you would like to follow along as I read, um, these slides are available once again in Moodle. If you'll go to the actual chapter we're working on, which is chapter 10, you can go down and look uh, after you click on that link on the left of the Moodle screen. And there is a Prezi presentation available so you can actually uh, have this to use and make notes with. So another law to talk about is the Consumer Leasing Act of 1988. And so the Consumer Leasing Act, or the CLA, amends the TILA, which is uh, the Truth in Lending Act, to provide f similar full dis disclosure for consumers who lease automobiles or other goods um, from firms whose business it is to lease such goods. If the goods are valued at 25000 or less, and the lease is for four months or more. So this is what the application of the CLA is for. All material terms of the lease must be disclosed in writing. And so these first two laws <clears throat> were basically designed for, designed for transparency. Um, you know, you hear this term regulation and deregulation, or these terms regulation and deregulation. Um, we've talked about it a little bit in class, but basically when you hear those terms, what we're really getting at is when you regulate a business or regulate uh, an organization, uh, you're basically putting some type of compliance or restriction on that organization or business for the purpose of keeping them between the lines, so to speak. Um, if you deregulate, you're basically removing restrictions. Businesses prefer to operate in a heavily deregulated environment. They don't like uh, all these restrictions because if it was up to them, they would like to be, probably, probably like to be in a situation where they didn't have to be as transparent, where they didn't have to have uh, these usury laws in place, where they could say, you know, if a person takes out a, a loan, short-term loan, and it's 100% interest, well, that's on them. They should know better. They should know that 100% is ridiculous, right? <clears throat> and so, you know, that was Scott Tucker's argument in, you know, one of his arguments for the uh, payday lending. He was like, look, we don't, we don't make people take these loans. We've got thousands of customers that are satisfied. Uh, it's these few noisemakers that are not happy that are causing the problem, but they chose to do this. This was, the onus was on them to uh, read and understand, you know. And so I can kind of see both sides of the argument, but I don't like corruption. I don't like businesses that intentionally try to defraud people. And I also understand that regulations can't hamper business, but I do believe that if you had a completely deregulated environment, businesses would 
dump toxic waste in the ditch and in the air. They would um, do things that harm consumers. And so we have these regulations to hopefully protect consumers and to make sure that you're not being taken advantage of through uh, any type of organization or business. And so this is the reason why we have regulations in place. And so um, the next thing is the Fair Credit and Charge Card Disclosure. In 1989, the Fair Credit and Charge Card Disclosure Act went into effect. This amends the TILA by requiring credit card issuers to disclose in a uniform manner the annual percentage rate, the annual fees, grace period, and other information on credit card applications. So once again, pushing for transparency. We want people to to know, well, you know, what <clears throat> to expect, what the expectation is of you entering into this agreement. Um, I did see a documentary. It's been a while. I don't remember exactly which one it was, but they were talking about the emergence of the credit card into the American uh, society, and uh, they were just talking about how you know it was really just a novel thing and not everybody had one to begin with. And it was uh, just interesting to be able to go in somewhere and and lay down a piece of plastic. Uh, Instead of having to write a check, you would lay down this piece of plastic. And this was back when they had these mechanical, you didn't swipe it through a debit card reader or credit card reader. They had these mechanical carbon copy uh, devices and you put the card down and then they laid a carbon print paper on top of it and they ran across and it copied your credit card numbers and stuff into this carbon copy of the papers. And then they would give you a copy and they kept a copy. And then they would send it to their accounting department and charge your card the appropriate charges. And so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting that we've come such a long way in such a short amount of time. But one thing the credit card did for the American society and I guess the world is that it allowed access to credits to people who may not have had access to it before. Uh, And so that was a good thing. And and like I said, credit cards are a double-edged sword. They're good. They are good and they are bad. Um, Because if you don't know how to manage them, they can get away from you. But if you do manage them the right way, they can be used to build credit. Another good use case that I didn't mention is in emergency situations. So let's say that you got a card. It's got a thousand dollar limit on it. And, you know, you use it every month, you just buy gas, you know, and your gas bill for your car, let's say it's $40 a week. So at the end of the month, you know, you've got $160 that you put on that credit card and then you pay it off. That's, that's a normal ebb and flow. <clears throat> well, let's say a couple months down the road and you have a blowout, your, when your tire blows out and you need, you know, $115 to replace that tire. Well, that would probably be a good use case for the credit card, you know, if you didn't have the cash. You could, you know, pay, put, put it on the card and then pay that off when you get paid, you know, or at least pay half of it. And then the next cycle, pay the full amount and then go back to a zero balance. So there are good and responsible ways to use that. Um, another good use case is that if we have a natural disaster or something and you need to get some groceries or supplies or something, that would be a good use case, you know. So <clears throat> these things do come in handy, but... It's good to have a line of credit to, to be available, but just to use responsibly in any case. Um, the next law came about in 2009. It's called the Credit Card Accountability, Responsibility, and Disclosure Act of 2009. 
So, the 1989 Act did make it possible for consumers to know the cost associated with credit card use, <clears throat> but the card company's behavior over 20 years convinced Congress that more regulation was required. In 2009, credit card, the Credit Card Accountability, Responsibility, and Disclosure Act, which was the Credit Card Act, uh, was passed. It is further amended, as far as another amendment of the TILA. And so, that being stated, some of the key parts of the Act are as follows. It restricts all interest rates increased, I'm sorry, it restricts all interest rate increases during the first year. So this is, it gets rid of the teaser rate. This is what you've got. Increases notice for rate increases on future purchases to 45 days. Limits fees and penalty interest and requires statements to clearly state the required due date and late payment penalty. Amounts in excess of the minimum payment must be applied to the highest interest rates. <clears throat> Protects young consumers. And then lastly, requires users to disclose the period of time, the total interest it will take to pay off the card balance if only the minimum monthly payments are made. <clears throat> and I apologize for the coughing. I've actually got a mint somewhere to grab. Let's see. Because uh, after you talk for like 45 minutes straight or so, your mouth does uh, kind of drop on you. So, But now i got a mint, so I'm like ready for round two. So, um, I'm actually going to pause the lecture for here because this is a good stopping point. Um, and when we pick it back up on Wednesday, I'm going to jump right back into talking about credit and we'll do a recap like we normally do in class. And that'll be probably a, be able to offer it with more clarity because I've already kind of broke the ice on that a little bit. So I do have some more time. So I figured I would spend it with you and just talk about some other things that are going on. Um, as far as campus goes, they are trying to maintain all the services that we are used to having on campus. So financial aid is open. Um, if you need tutoring, the tutoring lab is trying to do everything virtually. And so um, you should be able to have access to that. The library, those resources are available. And so if you need to go to the library, um, that's going to be available. I do have an update on that though. If you want to go to the library, They've asked, um, I think they're putting a limit on 25 people <clears throat> to visit at a time. So you can just give them a call or shoot them an email and find out when's a good time to go or if there's some times that are peak versus others. <clears throat> but I've actually been to campus a couple times in the past week. And um, each time I've been, which I know campus was suspended this past week, but each time I've been this past week, um, there wasn't very many people. Um, and they also mentioned that buildings were going to be, certain buildings will be locked. And so um, not probably the WLC, but if you needed to go to another building on campus, <clears throat> I think they're going to try to keep some of the doors locked because there's only going to be limited personnel in those buildings. And just for safety reasons, you know, they're just going to do that. But um, we, we want you to, I guess, if you need something on campus, we want you to reach out to us first. And then let us guide you to the appropriate resources and then let them uh, figure out, you know, how if you need to come to campus or if there's a, there's a way to do it remotely. So I guess the encouraging thing is to we want to make sure that you get everything you need, but while working remotely as much as possible unless absolutely needed to go to campus. As far as 
time, you know, how long is this going to last? <clears throat> and so nobody knows the answer to that. I, I certainly don't, but I can say that this is going to be a long term event. Um, I would not be surprised. I mean, we're still going to be dealing with this in the fall. I'll just go ahead and say that. I mean, I don't know if we're going to see a peak and then a decline in the summer and then a escalation again in the fall or what's going to happen. But I know that until we get a vaccine uh, for this coronavirus, it's still going to be present with us. And so yeah, I just don't know what the future is going to hold, but we're just going to take it one day at a time. You know, that's all we can do. Keep your morale up, stay positive, and we're all moving in a positive direction right now. We're still doing our schoolwork. We're moving towards degree completion, um, and uh, I don't see why we should just, you know, get get off that, that track, you know, stay on that track, moving towards positive outcomes, and <clears throat> just taking it one day at a time, you know, and as, as the future, you know, as we move towards the future, we'll figure it out as we go, but... Um, main thing I can, I want, just want to encourage you to stay, stay positive and stay safe. Um, I do, and you've probably heard me say it a million times already, but strongly encourage you to not venture out unless you absolutely have to. Um, I've been to a few grocery stores here and there this past week and, uh, there's way too many people still out and, you know, and I've been online, you know, reading stories, uh, reading, um, uh, different feeds and reading articles <clears throat> and some people have the the mentality that oh this is overblown and i don't know why people are freaking out you know only such and such people have died so far well <laughs> they they really haven't done the math and like i mentioned in the beginning of this podcast eight thousand cases four days ago thirty six thousand cases four days later uh, you know, by the time I, you hear recording from me on Wednesday, you know, it'll be, I mean, I'm thinking 50,000 plus cases, you know, maybe 60,000. So <clears throat> this is a exponentially growing issue and you need to take it seriously, but you also need to encourage family and friends, people in your circle to understand it and take it seriously because that's all, that's really the strongest thing we can do. <clears throat> to combat this issue is social distancing and people knowing the boundaries and so uh, i'm sorry to harp on that because but it's just that important um so to end on th something that's not related to the coronavirus <coughs> um let's see i've what i've been doing otherwise i have tried to read something every day not related to current events <laughs> I've got several books that I'm reading from. Um, and aside from that, I've tried to walk daily. I've got a pretty sizable yard. So I'm, in fact, uh, I've got probably an acre area that I can walk around. And my daughter, my oldest daughter and I have been walking around the yard, trying to get outside, get some fresh air and sunshine. And that's partially where my cough comes from. The pollen season happened to hit right when we've got this virus thing hitting, so not fun, but uh, <clears throat> I can't help but be around the pollen here in the country, and so, but in any case, um, aside from those two things, walking and reading, I've done some writing, I've tried to uh, do some creative writing, or just do some writing in general, and uh, 
I've actually done some cooking too and spending time with the kids and working on schoolwork. I'm trying to do some prep for you guys and the prep prep for the coming uh, week. And so I will be sending out an email tomorrow with an updated <clears throat> course schedule. And, or this was going to be on Tuesday, by the way. And that course schedule will pretty much have an amended assignment list. <clears throat> and basically what I'm going to try to do is over the next two weeks, maybe three, um, kind of just adjust those dates a little bit, but then try to keep as close to the previous schedule we had. So the next two or three weeks may be amended a little bit, but generally we want to try to keep those dates. <clears throat> I did hear that spring break is still going to be uh, like locked in, so we will have a break that is subject to change, but that's the latest news I've heard on that. It's not official. It's... Um, Kind of a inside source I had. <clears throat> but aside from that, guys, I appreciate your attention. It's time for me to go get some water. But anything that you need, please feel free to email me. I'm here to support you. And I hope you guys have a safe and good rest of your day. Talk to you later. Bye. Thank you so much for spending some time with me on the podcast. I hope you got something out of it and learned something that you can use in the world and share with others. If you did like it, please indicate so by liking, sharing, or going to Apple Podcasts and leaving a review. Until next time, I wish you well.